There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more. So when they needed us, we could fight the battles that they never could. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. So you've been studying the quantum realm. Part of Now Playing's Avengers and Marvel Comics movie series. The Avengers, that's what we call ourselves. Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Hosted by Arnie. You're not the one with the hammer. It's Thor. We get confused a lot, so we're body tight. Jacob. I've never had him in life. And Stuart. You're an interesting man. What are you prepared to do? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews that span the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I can do this all day. But be warned, this episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and mildly objectionable language. And I am guru. Whoa, language! Listener discretion is advised. Gentlemen, you're up. We hope you enjoy the show. Showtime, a-holes! Today, we're discussing Ant-Man and the Wasp. Quantum Mania. Did you guys catch the fact that Ant and Man are both in Quantum Mania? No, the, the levels of sophistication were lost on me. Q U Ant, U Man I A. I also noticed that Wasp was not in, can't be spelled in Quantum Mania, and is barely in <laughs> Quantum Mania. <laughs> Ain't that the truth, but she's second build because this film is starring Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly. Must be a contractual thing. Jonathan Majors, Catherine Newton, David Dasmalchian, Katie O'Brien, William Jackson Harper, Bill Murray, with Michelle Pfeiffer, with Corey Stoll, and Michael Douglas as Dr. Hank Pym, directed by Peyton Reed. This is the mental organism designed only for casting, podcasting that is, Arnie and Stuart. And my name is Jacob, and I have seven holes. So Ant-Man and the Wasp. Ant-Man has always kind of been an afterthought, right? We had Age of Ultron, and then Ant-Man ended Phase 2. And then we had Infinity War, and then Ant-Man came out between Infinity War and Endgame. Thor has the worst movies, but Ant-Man movies are the least consequential of the Marvel Universe, right? Like, you barely remember them. I went back this week to watch the first two because memories were vague. And I don't even remember from this week's viewing what happened in that second movie. Something about a ghost. <laughs> I mean, they just don't leave impressions. You are onto something, Stuart, because my wife and I go to see this film. 
in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, there's that whole Loki TV show where this guy has kind of been introduced, and is she going to have questions about that? No, like, the whole time she's whispering to me, like, questions about Ant-Man 1 and 2, which she's seen and liked, but she just didn't remember them. Like, she's like, wait, when did Michelle Pfeiffer get into these films? I'm like, that was the last one. <laughs> I had to go back and watch them as well. I honestly think Ant-Man 2 is one of the least watched, because I did all those marathons leading up to Infinity War and Endgame, and so yes. when I go to Letterboxd and look at the movie I've watched the most. It's usually because I've been doing Marvel marathons. It's all Marvel movies. But Ant-Man 2, I forgot about Ghost and I forgot about Goliath and I forgot completely about Walton Goggins. Who's Goliath? Goliath was Lawrence Fishburne's character. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. The only thing I could have told you was it had a Hello Kitty Pez dispenser that was flying down the hills of San Francisco. That was it. That was my one and only visual reference for the whole thing. And still the best scene in the movie. <laughs> my one visual reference coming back was Ant-Man as Giant Man in the harbor with a boat. That's the one thing I remembered coming back into it. Yeah, so much of that movie was lost on me. I went back. I did rewatch. I didn't do the whole Ant-Man thing. I didn't rewatch Endgame. I know that movie pretty well. But I did rewatch Ant-Man 1 and 2 to come back to part 3. And just off the top, I'm sad. I feel like the Ant-Man vibe is gone. Ant-Man had been a comedy series. Well, where is Michael Pena? He's like my favorite character in the Ant-Man movies. I did notice that. Like, he does not return. He was in the first two. Greg Turkington's going to return for this one as the manager at Baskin-Robbins, but no Michael Pena. They don't need any more of that joke. I'm totally fine. If they want to give Ant-Man something to do, which they do in this one, he is tasked with kicking off phase five of the Marvel Universe. Good. You finally get to do something. I don't need more goofing around at Baskin Robbins with his thievery crew of thieves that aren't really thieves. You know, they're, they're comic relief and we aren't to see them as cool. You sound like the coffee shop owner that mistakes him for Spider-Man. You just don't care about this Ant-Man. Do you? Does anyone? I mean, I, honestly, and I, and I don't mean that to sound rude. It's just, is this anyone's favorite? According to the box office, no, it isn't. I mean, looking at the openings for the first two, they were pretty small. No pun intended. The first movie had a $57 million opening, and the second movie had a $76 million opening. That's on the heels of Avengers movies. Like, when everybody is at their most Marvel-hyped, Ant-Man is bringing in box office numbers that you almost need some pim particles to make Marvel worthy. Yeah, so why do this? Why are they holding on to this? Why are they having him? I guess because he's one of the last ones left. I guess he is... The sexiest man alive. I forget that Paul <laughs> Rudd does have those bona fides from People magazine. And Paul Rudd is just a general likable guy. Which never got you shit at the box office. Just <laughs> ask Greg Kinnear. This is true. But you're right. As far as the Avengers go, they're really whittled down the people who had solo movies. Iron Man is gone. Captain America is gone. At least Chris Evans is. They're going to have another Captain America movie with Falcon as Captain America. And yes, they're trying to make Paul Rudd the center. I mean, I think the box office may decide, but this is theoretically not the last Ant-Man film. They're already talking about part four. Hmm. I understand why you bring back Ant-Man. I definitely understand why you bring back Paul Rudd. 
I think he's a great part of an ensemble. Like, Ant-Man's best films were Civil War and Endgame, <laughs> and not his solo stuff. But I still am surprised. Peyton Reed must be the nicest guy on the planet, <laughs> because not that he's a bad director, but he's a nothing director. What does he bring to the proceedings to make Ant-Man? That's what he brings to the proceedings. I don't think that Marvel wants A-list directors. I mean, Quentin Tarantino has come out and said, I'll never make one of those because they wouldn't let me do anything that I'd want to do. I, I will say this, though. Watching this movie and not critiquing the film itself, but just a, a general observation I had is like, yeah, the Bring It On guy is doing this big, wacky, special effects sci-fi film like i do feel like there's a gap there like marvel if you want to do this kind of film get a director that's used to this well i'll get more into that criticism later but it was weird watching this thinking this is the cheerleader guy the cheerleader movie guy doing this yeah it's the yes man guy as i always refer to him and the one thing i'll say is many directors who haven't done big effect spectacles like scott derrickson when he did doctor strange have said Marvel has the people there who will guide you with all the effects stuff. You don't have to worry about that as the director. You don't have to have that experience. Uh, Ryan Coogler didn't worry about that with Black Panther 1, and that will always be a mark on that film. They should worry about it. <laughs> well, that one had some rush deadlines that's come out. Yeah, I mean, we can let that go, right? <laughs> we all know Black Panther, it didn't get the effects done. Okay, Black Widow. There's another one with a non-action director, and those action scenes, not the best. The effects, not the best. There's some silly-looking stuff in that one. Maybe they should hire action directors, but the way I see it, they grab yes-men and nice guys that have little vision but are willing to take on the managerial duties. I mean, it's a management job. It's a middle management job. Your job is to convey information from the top brass to the people on set. And there's a hierarchical, we lionize directors because they're visionaries, they break boundaries, they do creative things. That's not this role. That's not this factory. That's not what you would hire for this position. This is a factory. And what this one cool director wants to do might completely gum up the works. Cogs, gears, all might jam up if they're allowed to do too much cool. Yeah, as we found out with Edgar Wright in this franchise. Let me have a counterpoint, though. I know you guys hate that first Thor movie, but I think it's fine. And Kenneth Branagh did that. It's not like they felt the need to stick with Kenneth Branagh. They did those Game of Thrones guys for part two. They didn't stick with them either. And then finally, they found in Taika Waititi somebody who would give Thor a voice. And once they had that, they kept him for Thor 4. I just don't understand the allegiance to Peyton Reed. And I do feel like he was a bad fit for the movie we're going to talk about. So tell me about Kang, because I feel like this is the thing I'm supposed to be excited about. No one's excited that Ant-Man is back, but they have already teased in Loki that this character is coming. I mean, I think what characterizes Phase 4 is a huge gap of a Thanos, you know, a Thanos-sized hole in what are we doing here? This is the guy that's going to plug it. I think we said when we did Loki, I think you said it, Arnie, that 
I always want to call him he who walks behind the rose, but it's he who remains. That that was different than Kang, because I'm like, oh, they're introducing Kang here, and you're like, well, they said this might be a different version or something. So, like, when I'm watching this, I'm like, how does this fit into the continuity of Loki? I'm like, oh, yes, this must be a different Kang, because we kind of got that backstory in that mini-series that's now a TV series. Yeah, he discovers the multiverse and can time travel and jump between worlds and all of his versions do that. And so, yeah, you get all this infighting with himself because he's the one that discovered this. Yeah, I went back and rewatched just that last episode of Loki because I had to remember everything about He Who Remains. And He Who Remains is almost He Who Doesn't Matter because all that stuff he talks about with the multiversal war and that... I don't feel like this movie really builds upon so much as just retells and that Kang here is very similar to He Who Remains in the Loki series. Like I said, I'm watching this. I'm like, oh, man, my wife's going to have a bunch of questions because she did not watch Loki. Loki didn't matter, just like a lot of that TV stuff. Like, sorry, Disney Marvel, like some of it doesn't matter. I did notice, though, in the Marvel logo at the start of this film, Moon Knight, She-Hulk, Falcon... These guys have all made their way into the iconography of the Marvel logo. So they matter, Jacob. They matter. (laughs) To be determined. (laughs) Well, they matter as much as you enjoy them, right? They're not going to be stupid enough to give important plot details in an obscure show and expect everyone to go watch that. They have to keep everyone on board. Small children are coming to this. Grandparents are bringing them. You have to spoon feed. And so, no, they're never going to make something so insider that you have to, you know, go deep and and dig out the plot twist. And I appreciate that as someone that feels overwhelmed at the prospect of ever watching most of these movies again to try and glean out a plot thread. You want somebody to do that job for you. I absolutely am fine with Kang just being announced here. It feels like his introduction truly happens here. But was he a big deal in the comic book lore? I mean, he has his storylines. He's not a Thanos. He's not someone that sticks out to me as like you would build this whole, you know, what they did with Thanos in Infinity War. Like this is going to be your next huge like 10 years of Marvel films. Like that is not the one I pick, but they have traditionally been able to pick more obscure characters and do really great things with them by recreating them for the big screen. Did you know his name before he was introduced in this? Or did you have to dig him up? Oh, for sure, yes. Okay, so he at least had name recognition. Even I did, and I know who he is. I think he's like Mr. Fantastic's descendant, like great-great-great-great-great-grandson or something like that. Something like that, yeah, like thousands of years in the future. And I don't read a ton of comics, but I knew that about Kang. All right, so, all right, that's really all I was asking was, did they go Guardians of the Galaxy Deep? Or is this something that comic book fans would know? It's somewhere in between. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Got it. I put him on the level of an Ultron, not necessarily a Thanos, but Mm -hmm. he's an Avengers villain that has appeared many, many times. Okay, yeah. And he does tie into Fantastic Four, which they are going to be bringing into the universe as well. Mm Mm-hmm. So I know this is the beginning of many movies for Kang. Is this the end of Paul Rudd? You said there might be more Ant-Man, but is it going to be Ant-Girl? I mean, like, I feel (laughs) like this movie is kind of a passing of a baton of sorts. I mean, that has been the whole last phase of Marvel, hasn't it? Like, here's your new Black Widow. Here's your new Hawkeye. Here's your new Iron Man. Here's your new Black Panther. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, that was handed to them, but yes. Here's your new Hulk. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like this could be recognizing that almost everyone from the first decade is now aging out, bowing out, doing other things. Paul Rudd doesn't want to do this for 10 more years, right? I think he does. I mean, they're talking, he is in discussions of what the plot for part four could be. Again, it really depends, I think, on the box office. Are they going to want to do this again, or are they going to just want to keep him as part of an ensemble? But Ant-Man 4 is very much on the table. That said, they have so many films on their slate already. I don't know when they do it. Would it be 2027 at that point? That's what I mean. This may get lost in the shuffle. Yeah, Paul Rudd might start to look like he's aging at that point. I doubt it. <laughs> what is the box office for this thing? How does it compare to the 50, 70 million that the other two halls have been? By far the biggest, but the early lofty estimates of 140 over the four-day weekend cooled, and now they're looking at 100 million over the weekend and maybe 110 mm. counting President's Day. So still kind of puny for Marvel if you compare it to Doctor Strange at 185 million. Right. That was crazy. Thor 4 at 144 million. Ant-Man still isn't the draw that those are. Mm -hmm. For sure isn't a draw on a Friday afternoon when I saw this because there was about as many people as when I saw Knock at the Cabin, about six. Wow. Did you see it in a big format? I saw it in IMAX. I just saw it in a regular theater where they didn't charge me $2 extra to have good seats. Mm -hmm. I saw this twice. I went Thursday to the early showing. They had one IMAX 3D showing the whole day, 4 p.m., and it was a enthusiastic, if anemic, crowd. I mean, at 4 p.m., you're still just getting out of school or you're at work and they did charge an extra fee for the 3D tickets, so I ended up paying like $28 for my tickets there. Ridiculous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I got a good seat. <laughs> a great line of sight, but I'd say it was maybe one-third full, and then I went back because I'll just say up the top, the 3D wasn't worth it. I really thought being in an all-CGI quantum realm, the 3D might blow me away. That's surprising. There were a few scenes where it was added depth, but now I wonder if the difference is just the budget and time these post-conversion jobs have and not the fact that it's a CG world. Yeah, let's not forget the fact this thing was moved up. Uh, we were supposed to be talking about Marvels this weekend, but they decided late in the game. That's been moved back. Yeah. Even further. Yeah. So maybe they didn't have the time for it. But I went back and saw it in 2D, much better viewing experience, the next day. But I went to the 345 showing, and it was seven people total in the theater to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a, a sizable crowd, but I've been to a lot of IMAX shows at this point, and it wasn't Top Gun big. It wasn't big, big. You know, like I, I, I know when I can't move to another seat, and this one had plenty of empty seats. I thought there was something interesting with the marketing. Sometimes we talk about the tie-ins, like what can you get at Denny's that's Ant-Man related. The one commercial, the one tie-in or promotion I kept seeing as I was watching YouTube and getting these ads, and this may be a first for Marvel, Heineken beer. It was the non-alcoholic mm. version, but like I saw that commercial so many times leading up to this. And yeah, I'm wondering, okay, what does that say about this film? Are, are they going... You know, again, for an older audience, they can't advertise alcoholic beer because it's Disney and Marvel, but 
I thought that was interesting that they'd even approach that kind of promotion. Agreed. I saw that a bunch. And uh, what to take of that? I think it's some kind of offering to adults. In case you think Ant-Man is only for kids, 50 plus Paul Rudd is here to say you can be a dude and and see Ant-Man. Have a non-alcoholic beer on top of the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> yeah. But then you go to IHOP. I believe IHOP is featuring Ant-Man pancakes and such. Okay. Not Denny's. I should have gone to IHOP to get ants on my pancakes. Denny's will usually have real ants on your pancakes anyway. <laughs> yeah, you might get that in lots of places if that's what you're looking for. All right, Arnie, give them the plot and we'll find out about this quantum mania. When the film opens, Scott Lang, a.k.a. Ant-Man, played by Paul Rudd, is a celebrity, writing an autobiography and riding the wave of being one of the Avengers who saved the world. He's so busy with his own life, he doesn't know his girlfriend Hope, played by Evangeline Lilly, and her father, Hank Pym, played by Michael Douglas, are teaching Scott's daughter, Cassie, now played by Catherine Newton, about quantum physics. Cassie has even made a device that sends signals to the quantum realm to help map that unknown universe. And if you don't remember, and I don't blame you, the quantum realm is from the other movies. It's described here as a secret universe between ours, outside time and space. So kind of like the end of both of those Men in Black films. Hi, Barker's Weave World. <laughs> Could never get through that. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Hank's wife, Janet, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, tries to get Cassie to shut the machine down, but it's too late. All five family members are sucked into the quantum realm. But separating the group, Hank, Janet, and Hope remain together, and Cassie and Scott are on their own. Separately, they all learned that the Quantum Realm is run by despotic ruler Kang the Conqueror, played by Jonathan Majors. There are groups of rebels who are trying to bring down Kang, but Kang's army is too powerful. Janet knows Kang from her 30 years spent in the Quantum Realm. He said he was stranded in the Quantum Realm just like Janet was, but he had a ship which could travel through time, space, and parallel universes, and it could return them both home. Janet helped him repair his ship's power core, with the promise of returning her to Hank and Hope. But once she did, she discovered Kang's true nature. In truth, Kang was banished to the Quantum Realm as a prison from which he could never escape, and his release would cause the death of trillions of people. So Janet used the size-changing Pym particles to grow Kang's power supply to a huge size, which left them both trapped in the Quantum Realm. Janet spent the rest of her time as a freedom fighter, joining the Quantum Realm natives fighting against Kang while he built his huge empire. Now that Janet is back with Scott and Hope, they have Pym Particles which will restore his power core to normal size and allow Kang to escape. Cassie and Scott are taken captive by Kang's agent MODOK, a mechanized organism designed only for killing. It turns out the big-headed villain is Darren Cross, played by Corey Stoll. Remember him? I doubt if Stuart would have if he hadn't rewatched the first film. <laughs> I mean, I know who Corey Stahl is, but I don't think you'd recognize him in this movie. Thank goodness they had those flashbacks. Yes, Darren wasn't killed at the end of the first Ant-Man film, which we thought, but deformed and transported to the quantum realm. Kang found Cross and transformed him into a floating killing machine. With Scott and Cassie now captured, Kang threatens Cassie's life, forcing Scott to recover the power supply. Scott almost doesn't succeed, but at the last minute, Hope shows up to help and they shrink the glowing globe. Once Kang has the power supply, however, he doesn't return Cassie. Rather, he takes Janet hostage and leaves the others to die. Scott leads the locals on an attack of Kang's citadel, 
and the Rebellion is fortified by an army of intelligent ants created by Hank. Meanwhile, inside Kang's stronghold, Cassie, who has a size-changing suit of her own, shrinks down and rescues Rebellion leader Gentora. While Gentora and Cassie fight from the inside, the armies fight from the outside. Cassie puts the smackdown on Modok and convinces him to help them fight against Kang, and Modok does, dying in the process. Using Kang's power core, Janet opens a portal back to Earth and she, Hank, Cassie, and Hope escape, but Kang attacks before Scott can. Scott and Kang fight and Scott is almost beaten, but Hope returns and together the two kill Kang. They return back home and resume regular life, but Scott is bothered by the thought of another terrible thing happening, as credits roll, to a scene of an infinite number of Kang variants from all the timelines. They have convened to start a multiversal war, and in an end credit scene, we're teased for Loki Season 2, which involves a Kang variant in the 1920s, and the movie ends. And as we start, in case you have, like me, forgotten Ant-Man and Wasp, we begin with Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes, she spent a lot of time in this quantum realm, and we don't know much about it, but this shows us that she wore a lot of hoods, took care of some (laughs) slug horses... And then one magical day, a streaking comet came down in her cave, and there is Kang. Now, I'm not an idiot. I know this is the villain, but it is a fool because you believe at this moment, in his moment of weakness, he looks like someone in need of rescue. He hasn't turned evil yet, is what I'm assuming. You have to feel bad for Janet, because we'll find out she didn't reveal much about her time in the quantum realm, but I got thinking about it. How much time has she had? She spent 31 years in the quantum realm. And she was rescued in Ant-Man 2, but at the end of Ant-Man 2, she was turned to dust for five years by Thanos. Now, I don't know how long after Endgame this movie is, I'm presuming one or two years, but that means Janet has only had, like, one or two years back in the regular world. She spent so much time here in the Quantum Realm, more than half her life, I presume. And, Stuart, you say he hasn't turned bad yet. I think he has, because... This is jumping later into the film, but he talks about how he's killed a bunch of Avengers. Not in this moment. He doesn't talk about it here. It's his actions that caused him to be banished. Yeah, later on, he talks about how he's killed the Avengers a bunch. Why isn't that the opening, like this huge fake out of him killing who we think is our Earth 1999-99 Thor? Or something like that. Like, that would be a real grabber. I was kind of surprised. Like, after what they did in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness with those offshoots of the Marvel Universe, Reed Richards and all that. Like, why wouldn't you have that as your opening here? It could have been a stinger attached to Marvel's that now because it's moved isn't here. (laughs) Or, like I said, it could just be a way of having you have sympathy for Kang before you hate him. This fool of the eye allows you to think, oh, he's still innocent. And something will happen to him in this realm that has him become the asshole I saw in season one of Loki. And because I came in with the pre-knowledge of Jonathan Major being Kang, and because I saw Loki, I instantly thought this was some kind of ruse. Like, he needs Janet at this moment, he saves Janet's life, Yeah. but I figure this is the bad guy, and what's he going to do? And we're not going to find out for a while, because it goes from this into modern day, and... We're in the Ant-Man of comedy that we know from the previous two. Paul Rudd going around. The coffee guy thinks he's Spider-Man. Strangers want him to take photos with their dogs, which I thought was hysterical. 
Yeah, the, the fact that he's got his autobiography that he's written and he's doing readings for. I don't know what bookstores, like there ain't no bookstores around anymore, but he's doing his public reading. They're really coming out with that book. It's being published in September. I can't wait. <laughs> okay. I, if, if Paul Rudd does an audiobook reading, it will be heaven. He has to. Like, that seems like the main selling point. Look, I know Marvel has to expand their universe, actors, contracts, end, and they have to get new people. It did feel nice, like, coming back to a more familiar MCU, though, with this opening after, you know, Eternals and Shang-Chi and, like, all this new stuff. I like what they do with their universe building, with the snap and all that and seeing the repercussions. So I, I like this. Like, yeah, he's going around. Hey, I, I saved the world. I'm an Avenger, too. And no, you're an Ant-Man. Not really. You know, Hope is getting a lot of awards here at the beginning. She's doing all the humanitarian work while he's dining out for free is the way that it's sort of pitched here. He's reaping all the benefits while she's still trying to save the world. I want to give her one more award. The Rachel Maddow lookalike contest. <laughs> you win. Damn, I didn't even recognize Evangeline Lilly for like a good five minutes. I'm like... But where's Wasp? The very first scene where you see her in the office, she's putting on the Wasp suit and they're having that date on top of the Golden Gate Bridge. With their non-alcoholic Heinekens. Again, this is all done in very rapid montage and I'm thinking I'm that might be a secretary or something. I don't know. Is Scott cheating? I couldn't even remember the relationship <laughs> if they were brother or sister or what. You really didn't retain anything. I retain nothing because I want nothing. I don't have any love for this at all. You say that you're charmed to be back here. Couldn't care less. My problem is we're supposed to think Evangeline Lilly and Paul Rudd are in love in this movie. We are? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We get it at this Golden Gate Bridge date. Mm -hmm. We get it a little bit at the end. But man, throughout the rest of this movie... They're not even together, you know, they're separated on their own missions, and I just don't feel the love between these two coming through. I feel like in these early scenes, they're just lacking chemistry. I mean, I think we've talked about the problem of Evangeline Lilly. Like, I think that is the problem. She does not want to be in these. Like, yeah, she got one. It became popular. Now she wants to move on to other stuff. And like, you can tell she does not want to do this. I actually disagree. I feel like, again, the most improved player award <laughs> is Wasp. Like she actually genuinely seems warm here. The problem I've had in the past is in trying to prove that she's tough and aggressive in the business world, that she was highly unlikable. She was caustic to be around. So they've clearly softened her. They've given her the haircut that's less severe. She's no longer Uma Thurman Pulp Fiction. She is like, yeah, like Rachel Maddow, San Francisco, newsy, nerdy. Yeah, his girl Friday. And I feel like that was a nice choice. It allows her to be approachable. So it's weird that the movie is not about Ant-Man and Wasp. As you say, they spend it apart, but they don't give wasp anything to do this movie's entire focus is going to be on cassie oh you think cassie i think janet no 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 janet is there for the backstory but this movie the theme is being present for your daughter yeah this is a family disney movie like it really sticks out yeah cassie is now in jail like the book reading gets interrupted because jail is saying your daughter 
has been involved in some kind of political protest. We don't know what, but she's continuing in the tradition that Scott used to be involved in of fighting corporate America. They say she was doing a homeless camp. The police were rousting a homeless camp and she was protesting against that. And I like this dynamic they set up at the beginning here with Hope, who, like, is using her resources not to make, like, more Iron Man suits, but to create affordable housing. 100% on board for that. They say 700,000 people left California in the pandemic. Not enough. Housing is still not affordable here. So what's interesting is Hope and the daughter, they're more progressive. Like, they are actually taking actions to solve real-life problems where Ant-Man is, yeah, he's basking in the celebrity. Which I feel like that was Iron Man's whole thing. Like, yeah, he was always making suits on his off time. But a lot of these characters, it's more about, yeah, how they interact with the public and uphold the status quo when a, a bad guy from space shows up. But here, they're actually trying to solve things, and Ant-Man's not. And worth pointing out, Cassie is not her daughter. Are they married now? Like, she's playing sort of a mother role, but I don't see that they have any real scenes together. So it would help to see that their activism is united. It doesn't feel like what Hope is doing is what Cassie did to get in jail. I get the impression that they're still just dating, that they're not married. But at one point, Cassie does refer to Hank Pym as Grandpa Hank. So it's kind of a blended thing, but... I feel like if Evangeline Lilly decided not to come back for Ant-Man 4, it's not like Scott would be a divorcee. Yeah, I didn't feel like a, a lot of this story was about a stepmom and a stepdaughter like learning to get along and work together. I thought it might go there. It's interesting, though, like the other mom's not in this at all. Like maybe that's on the cutting room floor, but she's hanging out with Luis. Yeah, all those people who were so important. T.I. went to jail. I mean, I think he might literally have been incarcerated. Like a real jail. Well, T.I. got canceled, yes. But I feel like these solo films give a chance for these characters, these heroes, to have their own supporting cast. And by jettisoning all of them, we get one cameo in here. We get Agent Wu, who was also in WandaVision, is having dinner with Scott at one point. But we don't see Louise. We don't get to see Judy Greer. This is... Where's Judy Greer? She's in everything. No, I've never heard you ever say those words, Arnie, and I know you don't mean them. So just stop that you <laughs> think there should be more Judy Greer here is a straw man argument you don't even mean. <laughs> I'm saying I wanted the supporting cast and they've really narrowed it down to, yes, as if the family just consists of these five people, Grandpa Hank, Grandma Janet. I'll stay in a part of that. Yay. Throw out all that other stuff and just get to the quantum realm. The thing I appreciate most about this movie, it's called Quantum Mania. And by minute 12, we're in the quantum realm and we don't leave until the movie's over. Is it that fast? Because it does feel very fast. And I do appreciate that. Like, let's get on with the story. These movies are always like 20 minutes too long. Please. But like, at least they get there quickly. Yeah, too quick, I feel. I feel like this is whiplash-inducing. No! No, this is what I want to see. I do not want more Baskin-Robbins jokes. I do not want more Louise telling a story long-winded. Get to it. Absolutely. This is the thing that matters. Kang matters. The rest of the Ant-Man universe, sub-phylum, is, his ant colony is worthless. But yeah, it is super fast. Like... They get Cassie out of jail. They're having a pizza dinner. And she's like, oh, in secret, Hope 
Hank and I have been working on this. She says something that I found hard to believe. During the blip, she was reading Hank Pym's journals about science. I mean, how much did Cassie really even know Hank at this point? Because Paul Rudd was banished from Hank's life. Paul Rudd couldn't have any contact with them for years because of his ankle bracelet and, you know, being on parole. It seemed like a stretch that this girl who was living with her mother would go and dig through Hank Pym's science journals during five years. I did think Cassie's a little overpowered here. The fact that she is Tony Stark level, Reed Richards level smart, able to map the quantum universe. Like you have Michael Douglas do that, but not Cassie. Like there's no way. Okay. So before this movie started, they played like nine gazillion trailers. And one (laughs) of them was for Shazam 2. There's a line in Shazam 2 that should be a line in this movie. Because it stuck with me. Like, it's a joke that he was like, first a wizard gave me superpowers, and then everybody had superpowers. (laughs) And that is what's happened here, right? Like, we no longer just have a superhero that has a normal family. Everybody from the dog to grandma has to put on cape and spandex and have their moment, too. And the fact that we have Ant Girl perhaps feels inclusive and will bring in a segment of the audience that wouldn't just watch Ant-Man, but for me, feels like the moment that superhero films jump the shark. We don't need a world in which everyone is a superhero. And the fact that she's going to have a suit later on, it just takes away from that element of danger. Like, you got to have someone that's vulnerable that you need these superheroes to save. Like, That's how this works. The fact that everyone's super powered, everyone's going to have their scene, it does take a little bit away. I'm annoyed by that. Just put that out there. I'm annoyed by the idea that we live in a world where everyone gets the gold star, and that means everyone will have a superhero spinoff on Disney+. Screw that. Disney will love that. (laughs) I do not want that kind of minutia. I don't want it. Stick to the main stuff. We don't need a whole universe of everyone's superhero origin story. Where you been the last 10 years, Stuart? Well, this is what it's led to. This is the moment where I realize, oh, now what's Wu's moment where he's going to turn into the FBI superhero? <laughs> like, it's just, I don't want it. You're right. The Baskin Robbins guy, like he'll be like some kind of cake wielding superhero. Like <laughs> you laugh, but like your laughter encourages them. It makes them say, oh, you're right. We need to get on that. Stat, get a writer's room. I don't want this. I want to be clear. I want a movie about Ant-Man finding Kang, and I don't want a universe where everyone on the block has a story about their time in a cape. I'm sort of with you. I feel that way definitely about the stuff on Disney+. Plus. Like, there's just too many supers going on now, and everybody has that clone. There is a second Hawkeye, there is a second Hulk and all of that. And now there's three Ant-Men, if you count Cassie and if you count Wasp as an Ant-Man. There's five with those grandparents. Yeah, but neither one of them puts on suits, and I think that's important. If they all put on suits, then I'd say five. And at one point in the first film, Hank did say that he wore the suit for so long it took a toll on his body, and so he's not able to do that anymore. So I like that. That's why he sits there with his arms in jelly the whole time. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about Michael Douglas and what he can do. Like, I appreciate that he's alive. The man had stage four cancer. 
big scare. I'm glad that he had the cute little cameo in the first Ant-Man. The fact that he's continued on has felt useless. And here, yeah, they literally have to just put him in a chair and like draw the controls over his hands because he cannot move in this movie. And you feel like, oof, it's a weight on this movie that they have to give him a storyline. I don't even understand his storyline. When we get there, I look to you guys to explain to me this whole thing about the ant colony. Because not only does he get sucked in, Michelle Pfeiffer gets sucked in and everyone else... But Judy Greer gets sucked in. No, Judy Greer is not in this film. (laughs) Yes, but there's this ant colony that gets sucked in and they're going to come back as these mechanized, modified super ants because everything has to be a superhero. I mean, they set that up at the beginning, Stuart. Like they look at this ant farm and they all have like lasers attached to their head and they're like, yeah, they're just creating their own technology. Do they? That's what they tell us. Do they have them yes. in the beginning? I saw that later. No, that's in the very first 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Before they go into the quantum realm. Okay. It's a fast 10 minutes. So to me, I felt like I processed that 30 minutes later, but okay. (laughs) So they're super ants and they'll be his friends and help him stumble through this climax. You know, coming in, I didn't expect to be the one defending this movie, but I like Michael Douglas's performance. I agree. They're not given much to do. I feel like Hope and Hank are really sidelined in this film. I feel like the Wasp in Ant-Man and the Wasp is Janet, and that this is Scott, Cassie, and Janet's movie, and the other two kick back. But Michael Douglas, his performance here, I have no problems with. I like his sense of humor. I laugh when Cassie's in jail, and he goes, I just would have broken you out using ants. You know, I mean, I found that line funny. I think this cast works well when they get their lines. It is telling, though, like, Michelle Pfeiffer, well, she'll get a stunt double. I don't think she's pulling those moves off, but she gets fight scenes. And Michael Douglas is going to sit in a chair. And at one point, you could see a hearing aid. I'm like, oh, that's great representation. Old people, you got to get hearing aid. You lose your hearing. No, we're going to find out that's how he talks to the ants. Maybe I just forgot that. But I did find it funny. Like, he sits around and has a hearing aid that he's adjusting the whole film. Yeah, Michael Douglas is a charming actor. He's very frail, is all that I'm really saying. He's frail enough that they have to design action scenes around him where he doesn't have to move. And that just is notable, not to the movie's betterment. Arnie, you rewatched the previous Ant-Man films. I did not watch for this viewing, those ones. But I have to ask, should they, instead of Quantum Mania, call this Retcon Mania? Because there are so many people now, or beings, in this quantum realm, which they tell us, oh, we thought it was empty. No, there is actually people. Like, there's a lot of people. There are whole cities that they never came across. Okay, now, I tried to look as close as I could, but what Kevin Feige said in an interview is intentionally, when they did the graphics for the quantum realm in the previous films, they would have far-off little cities and things, and they tried to tease that there was life in the quantum realm and to hook us in and be like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we could see what that is, if we could visit that? Now, watching it, I just see a CGI blur. I looked for cities. It's like a kaleidoscope every time they go into the quantum realm, and I couldn't tell. But apparently, this is something that they had intended from the very beginning. Okay. Okay. This thing is called quantum mania. I don't know why it's called that, but the connotations of that make me think of listomania. I don't know if people know that movie from the 1970s. Ken Russell is a 
mad genius director. He really invented the music video in my mind. But he, in that film, had coarse lines of dancing penises and did all sorts of provocative surrealism. I was preparing for weird. Capital W, getting there early, having Quantum Mania be the title signified to me that this was going to be the trippiest movie of the Marvel Universe. Screw you, Doctor Strange. We're going to outweird you by a hundred. I don't know if I got that film. What you got was Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Every scene is the cantina scene in this film. I feel like I wanted a Terry Gilliam, a Ken Russell, or somebody. I love surrealism. I love the creativity that goes in putting things that don't normally go together together. But this movie, it feels surrealistic in the way that I feel like a lot of kids entertainment is. Like, I hate to be boomer on you, but like when my niece shows me Adventure Time... Oh, don't bad talk Adventure Time. I just feel like they just show a dog and a unicorn. They just throw a bunch of stuff on the screen. And it's like, what was the point of all this? You don't know the lore. What is the point of all of this? Like, you're telling me I haven't gone deep enough. I feel in this case, with this writer, the person they got to write this film is the joke writer for Jimmy Kimmel. He's never made a movie before. And I feel like everything we get is cute and kid-friendly. And I miss a Terry Gilliam surrealism of time bandits. I mean, Stuart, you said that this is what Marvel does. They don't get visionaries behind their films. They are the vision and they get managers to bring that vision to life. They would never get a Terry Gilliam. Not that Terry Gilliam would ever do a Marvel film. And if he did, it would take 20 years. Yeah. And then it'd be like, oh, yeah, that's kind of okay. Yeah. People would die. We can imagine the tragedies surrounding such a production. I don't say get Terry Gilliam. I just thought... I really did believe this, too. I really thought this was going to be darker because they recognized it was important to establish a villain. You're associating Quantumania with dancing penises from 70s cinema. To me, it's a jokey name. It's like, yeah, Quantumania. It's like this weird quantum physics, but you put mania at the end. It just feels like lighthearted and jokey. And that's what Ant-Man is. And I agree. I wanted more weirdness, but I got a lot of weirdness for a Marvel film in this one. Yeah, I feel like they're really sending us into another realm, feeling very isolated from the Marvel Universe. You know, we get 10 minutes in the Marvel Universe and now we're in another universe. And I honestly think they chose Quantumania because it has ant and man in there in the letters. I don't think it goes much further than that. Okay, again, I knew I shouldn't put too much stock in Listomania. It was a flop even of its day, but it's become something else. Phoenix made a song about it. And I'm not bashing this movie. I want to calibrate my comment to have you understand my expectation. I was expecting this to be a dark surrealistic movie that orients us to a new villain that's going to be super important. That stars Ant-Man. That's the thing that should have tipped you off. I didn't feel like Ant-Man was going to be the focus or that Ant-Man was going to finally be a real superhero and not a punchline. And so the surprise, and I'll just leave it as a surprise. I'm not going to call it unpleasant, but the surprise for me about this movie, it's mostly about cutting up with broccoli headed people. It's really not got a whole lot to its agenda at all, frankly. Yeah, this film's agenda is to talk about holes, and I'm counting how many holes I have as they're having that discussion. And when they say seven, I'm like, that's the same number I came up with. That's funny. Like, that is the level of this film. I was confused by that. Do pupils count as holes? 
They absolutely are holes. They are absolutely holes. Two nostrils, two ears, a mouth, a butthole, and a, and a penis or a vagina hole. The eyes count. I'm sorry, but your pupils are holes. I mean, do you get into pores and all that? I mean, sure. Yeah, right. Exactly. Anyway, so again, I say this only to help you understand my confusion about so much of this movie being silly and not really being about getting, you know, there's a lot of talk about this Kang character, but he takes an hour to show up and I don't even know what he's doing. He wants to get away and he's built some kind of city and he's built like a killer, you know. He has stormtroopers. Yeah, blue-faced kind of people, but it's not the movie I expected it to be, and it isn't as plot-driven as I think Marvel needs Phase 5 to be. I'll agree with you that it's jokier than I expected, and yet not as jokey as I wanted. You know, if you look at the other two Ant-Man films, I'd say they were comedies. The one thing Marvel has done, the way they've been able to have longevity is by doing different genres and saying a superhero film doesn't have to be one thing. And so they've had superhero comedy films. One of my favorite actors from The Good Place, I don't know if either of you watched it, I felt like it was a great show. I think of him as Midsummer, the black guy that got whacked, but yes, same thing. Yeah, William Jackson Harper is here as a psychic who's going to make jokes going, I wish I wasn't psychic, people are disgusting. Stop thinking that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the level I'm expecting. It's funny. I think we're coming from opposite places, Stuart, because you're expecting weirdness. And then, oh, I'm getting a lot of like, haha humor. I was expecting the haha humor. And I'm like, I'll be happy if I get some weirdness. Mm, okay. For me, it feels sanitized and not oriented towards anything that feels like a plot. I mean, how many of these films have you seen, though? Like, this is the formula. I'm not disagreeing with that. I believed that they needed to get their act together and that this would be the movie to do it. I agree with Stuart there. I thought this movie, as the kickoff to Phase 5, as the big screen introduction to Kang, needed better focus than what they have. Yeah, that's all that I'm saying. Do I enjoy this? Yeah, it's okay. Let's walk through. There's not much to talk about. It's kind of where I'm left with this. I mean, it ends up being a Star Wars film. Like The Empire Strikes Back, we split our heroes into two groups, and they each go to a cantina full of (laughs) aliens. Where they got to drink weird juice. Yeah, which conveniently allows them to understand the language. I'm glad that they have some process to do that, instead of just everybody in the quantum realm happens to speak English. I mean, it's like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with the babble fish you stick in your ear so you can understand alien languages. I wish it was. Thank you for bringing up Douglas Adams because I kept going to Terry Gilliam, but this is another one. I feel like there are people that do this kind of weirdness and it has an adult sophistication, right? And like this one is one you can take young kids to. I don't really feel like anything that it does is that challenging or weirder than what they're watching on a Twitch stream. It's Star Wars. Okay. I mean, and I'm on a podcast with two people that revere that movie. To me, that feels like, okay, yeah, you're milking a 50-year-old franchise at this point. I mean, that is Hollywood. That is the state of Hollywood today, so. I guess so. I guess I'm just processing this still, that I feel like I thought the quantum realm would be more. I thought Kang would be more. I thought that Marvel, after getting the criticism that people didn't know what they were doing with all of these characters, 
I won't say it again. I've said it enough, but I really just felt like I spend most of this movie wondering what's the point. And I spend a lot of this movie feeling that this script is not tight. You say this is a first time script writer. Yes. I mean, so they go to this cantina, Hank, Janet and Hope go to this cantina because they're trying to meet Kylar, who is somebody Janet knows from their freedom fighting days. In the quantum rail. Yeah. Why do you bring in Bill Murray for this? Why do you have such a great cameo and use him just for this? I swear, coming in, I knew about MODOK. He was in the trailers. He was? Yeah, he was. So I knew that they had Corey Stoll in the trailers, but my hope coming in is that that was a trailer foolery and Bill Murray would be MODOK. Did you know Bill Murray was going to be in this? Because I, I missed that. He was in the trailer. Yeah, I didn't see no MODOK, but I did know that Bill Murray was here. I have a theory on this. I'm just going to throw it out. Bill Murray's a really weird dude. If you want to reach him, like he has like a mailbox, like you have to mail him an old fashioned letter, type it out, send a carrier pigeon. He doesn't have an agent. And so he doesn't book a lot of gigs except through friends. I think he only does like Wes Anderson movies now or Garfield movies because contractually <laughs> he screwed himself. No, Chris Pratt is the new voice of Garfield. Oh, good. I'm so glad he got out of that. But you know what I mean? He just doesn't book a lot of gigs. But that last Ghostbusters movie, right? Afterlife, Ooh. he ran into Paul Rudd and said, hey, how do I get into one of these Marvel things? Paul Rudd ran back to the people making this film and said, write something. And yes, it's a squandered opportunity. You could have Bill Murray, one of our great comedy giants, do, he could be the villain or whatever you need him to be. After I saw the film, again, I was surprised he's here. He was never in those non-alcoholic Heineken commercials that I mostly saw promoting Ant-Man. I saw the trailer maybe once or twice and had forgotten that. But I did read afterwards. Yeah, I was surprised he showed up. And he did say he wanted to play a bad guy. And I guess he kind of does play the bad guy here. He's going to turn on them. He, he's definitely the Lando Carissian without the redeeming arc. It feels like they write him in real quick, though. The shock is he will never return. He has this one scene where yeah. it's kind of funny that, yes, Michelle Pfeiffer, in desperation, 30 years in the quantum realm, she banged him. That's it. Yes. The person he was rebelling against, they're still not using the word Kang yet, but they're implying that this person that blew in at the start of the movie is become this conqueror. He's turned to that dark side and she's disappointed. And it's a gunfight. And he is going to have a moment where he's going to eat this like baby squid thing that's screaming and crying as he eats it. It's a real old boy moment. <laughs> if you've seen that film. I have. Yes. He's going to get his just desserts because Hope is going to make one of those squids giant and the squid is going to be eating him as they fly off and steal his ship. But yeah, it does feel so wasted that this is what you do with Bill Murray. And you're right. It feels like an unnecessary stop. What do they get out of this? They get that he was a freedom fighter who now works for Kang, and they get a ship out of it. But you literally could have cut it if it wasn't Bill Murray, and I don't think that it would have mattered. I mean, it's colorful. There's a lot of characters, and you can make statues and figurines out of all this stuff. But yes, there is not a plot to drive forward, honestly. There's not a lot that's going to happen. The one other plot strand that gets dropped here. It's a tease of, oh, Kang is going to get your friends. They're worried about where Scott and Cassie are. We've cut back and forth, so we know that they're hanging out with rebels. And Bill Murray's character says there's been some kind of 
mechanized killing machine that's designed to hunt them down, you're to think that they're in real peril. Oh, come on. When they say this mechanized organism designed only for killing, I'm like, oh yeah, there's MODOK. All right. I guess comic book people would know what that means. I did not know this was coming. I thought that this would be a real delight to learn this in this moment, that it's actually the weird Jack Kirby character with the baby legs. I know. I love MODOK. I love that design. I have MODOK statues in my house. I wondered, could they ever do it? The writers of Winter Soldier said that they felt they could make MODOK work as a Captain America villain, but they just never got a chance. I thought he might be just too weird to bring in, but the fact that they did bring him in baby legs and all, you know, not like Arnim Zola, where he became a mainframe instead of a walking robot with a face. No, this is his comic book MODOK, basically. Yeah. Only in the comic, he's super intelligent. He's like one of the smartest beings ever. He's a mental organism, not a mechanized organism. Well, the acronym changes from comic to comic to fit their needs. It's worth pointing out, I only know this character because I've been to Arnie's house a lot, and there are statues <laughs> of him all over the place, and I had the misfortune, and I think this show has been deeply buried, but there is some kind of stop-motion Patton Oswald MODOK show. I watched one episode of this because I was like, well, MODOK's this thing, I gotta understand it, and clearly, the fact that it was on Hulu and not Disney+, Plus speaks to how much distance they're trying to put between that show and... And, yeah, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, that show was so bad. Just a real quick one-line review. You could have replaced it with Skeletor, or you could have replaced MODOK with Cobra Commander and had the exact same show. It is just a robot chicken sketch that stretches on way too long. Oh, my God, that is bad. Yeah, that's what it felt like. And I've only seen about 30 seconds of robot chicken, but, yes, that checks, yes. It's adults playing with their toys and not doing anything funny. And making the same joke over and over and over. Not doing too much that's funny. So anyway, long story short, I'm eager to learn what the importance is of MODOK. He has never been Yellow Jacket, right? This is a conception for this movie. No, this is all new. Yeah, MODOK in the comics is mostly a Captain America villain, though he fights everyone eventually but yeah to put him in the quantum realm maybe that's how they justify it in the cinematic universe like this really weird looking character that maybe wouldn't work on earth but yeah when you have people with slug horses and jelly bodies and all that it makes sense broccoli heads yes <laughs> again what i would say if there's a relationship that matters in this movie it's not ant-man and wasp it's ant-man and cassie this is her worst nightmare from the first movie that she was attacked in her bedroom. You might forget that the climax of that film was like literally in her bedroom playing on her train set. She has had this fear of Yellow Jacket. The fact that he's back should be terrifying for her. I think it just ends up being this pep talk between father and daughter about, I don't know, there's just so much about Cassie that she needed to have a father figure. I wish they had written it that she actually needed Scott. You know, like I feel like she's so self-actualized that she didn't suffer by him not being in her life. Yeah, again, this goes back to my complaint that this film has some very loose writing in it is I'm struggling to figure out what Cassie getting arrested has to do with her arc in this film. And closest I can come up with is 
She wants to help people. Scott has ignored them. And when they find this ragtag band of rebels there, Cassie wants to help the rebels and Scott just wants to save Cassie and get home. And Cassie gets that line in. Just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean it's not happening. You're saying you're struggling to understand that, but you just explained it really well. I don't think it's deep, but it's clear to me like, yeah, that is her arc. She wants to help people. Ant-Man doesn't. Yeah, it's a very Gen Z mantra, I felt like. It will really connect with young people that, yeah, might look at their parents as being part of the problem because they're not activists. You know, they understand the problems, perhaps. All they want to do is eat Baskin-Robbins and sell books. They're contributing to the brokenness, according to the young generation. Speaking of which, now Playing's book is published and available for sale. (laughs) And I do like Baskin-Robbins, so I'm a real (laughs) ant man. Mm Mm-hmm. So anyway, I guess what I'm saying is if you're going to make this the relationship, if it's Ant-Man and Ant-Girl, I really want to watch something unfold here. But she doesn't see damaged and she has a suit. She already knows how to use it. Like they make this point that she's had to grow up on her own and yet she's well integrated with the grandparents. And yes, the writing's bad. Uh, We can all admit that this is a joke writer who doesn't understand characters. Yeah, it's a comedy. But he also doesn't understand pacing. Am I the only one who both times I watched it feel like this middle is exposition heavy as they keep giving us drips and drabs information about Kang and this movie drags during it? Yeah, I did want them to finally just say Kang because there's so much hinting about him. He's coming. He's looking for like, yeah, okay, just get to it already. Even I know it's Kang. I'm like, come on. Uh, Yes, we know Kang. And other people do too. He was in the Loki series. You can't keep this game up. He was at the beginning of this film. Like, if you know basic story setup, like, that character's got to come back at some point. Well, no, you know he's coming back. But what you want to know and what Michelle Pfeiffer does in this moment is she's flying to the place where the two different groups will reunite is that she finally explains her story with that alien, that she worked with him. The way I describe it is he's got a engine core that's circular, a globe of some kind of power structure. And I don't understand the science. I don't think the screenwriter understands the science. There is no science. <laughs> yes, but they end up solving the problem. But in doing so, she also reads his mind and realizes he wasn't crashing here He was banished here, and now she doesn't want to give him the means to leave. Yeah, quantum mania, retcon mania, telepathic mania, like everyone's reading minds here. Yeah, Yeah. that ship is linked to his brain, so when she touches it, she knows what he's done. Mm -hmm. And what has he done? I mean, exactly, it sounds like it's he who remains. He talks about how there's a lot of him, and they were children playing with the multiverse and they were going to damage the multiverse so he has destroyed timelines just like he who remains in the tva did Mm -hmm. in order to maintain order and to stop the variant hymns so it makes this kang sound not like a villain but like he's the good guy yeah somebody who's keeping order oh yeah no no we know that now We know that by the end of this movie that they think they've beaten Kang and what they did was they defeated the one Kang that can fight all the other Kangs. But all the other Kangs didn't do anything in the, what, 25 years that this Kang was in the quantum realm? Well, no, if you go back to, I think you have to go back to Loki where they explain all this more where, yeah, once Kang and all the different multiverses realized he could jump around, things started going bad. And I took it that this one was going around. I don't know if he's killing other Kangs, but... 
they really do make it sound like he was the one doing all the killing when, I don't know, he who remains had a bureaucracy to do it. Yeah, it's strange to me that they're repeating this and it just feels like they're repeating the exact same points they made at the end of that Loki series. And either because they don't think people will remember that Loki series. I mean, I had to go back and rewatch that last episode to remind myself of all this minutia or because the left hand and the right hand don't talk to each other at Marvel anymore and it's just not a tight continuity. But I don't know if I'm supposed to fear this Kang because Janet's there and is like, you're killing trillions. And that's true. That's what He Who Remains did also. I think this is all misdirection. Where She misunderstood him. She believed that he was the one and only Kang who killed all of these trillions. When in fact, what she saw interconnectedly through all the multiverses, several different Kang's crimes and put it all on the one dude that wants to go back there and kill his other selves. It seems like, and this happens in a lot of movies, like just take an extra like two minutes to talk it out. Like Kang, just explain what's going on. And like, maybe she won't have this violent (laughs) reaction to you. Like just talk. But this Kang is a despot. I mean, he is going to build an empire. He is going to be the emperor there. When they rebuilt the ship, this is dropped in dialogue. No question if you didn't catch it. But when the ship came back online, it gave Kang back his armor. And his armor allowed him to become a conqueror and allowed him to build an army and all of this stuff. And so... Now that that ship had powered on, even though he can't escape the quantum realm because Janet blew that up. Time doesn't apply there. Yeah. But he now is able to make this his kingdom. And so that is still an evil thing to do. He's killing the rebels and killing mercilessly in here. He's a power hungry person. He's not a good guy. True enough. I know he's not a good guy. Because he doesn't honor his word about Cassie. He goes to Scott and is like, I need a thief. And Modoc tells me, back on your world, you were one. I forget that myself. But yes, that was what Ant-Man 1 told us. And so he needs to go steal. All right. I don't think he has to steal anything. He just has to jump into this giant core and shrink it. Yes. I don't know why you have to jump in it. Like, just throw your little... Ninja's shrinking stars at it from the outside, but you have to go to the middle for some reason. Yeah, I don't really understand that as well, Mm -hmm. but it does lead to one of the best scenes in the movie because as you enter this, because the power core manipulates time and space, you end up with this probability storm is what MODOK calls it, and you get a million Paul Rudds all talking to each other, including one who, in his reality, still works at Baskin-Robbins. Yeah, he's inside of Schrodinger's box, if if you know that whole paradox where you don't know which way it's going. Infinite possibilities. Yes. Yes. Everything that he could possibly do is represented here. And I feel like this writer, like, kind of understands that concept probably as well as I do, but he's not smart enough to do smart jokes about it. Like, these are the jokes that I would write. Like, yeah, infinite Scots, one of them's in the Baskin-Robbins suit. Like, it's funny enough but it could be better. I just thought we would get a lot more of this kind of trippiness, and I thought it would just play darker. I don't know that there's ever a moment that's scary. Like, I thought that you would want to do that, particularly since you're building a, towards a supervillain. 
Yeah, I remember our co-host Brock asking us about Doctor Strange, like, is it too scary for his kids? Like, no, this one, like, maybe that one is, but this is definitely a family film. Like, take the little ones to it. There's nothing scary here. It's about family working together. It's the Incredibles, basically. Yeah, I mean, to some cheesy effect. I mean, like, there's a line in there, like, Scott, at this moment, it's just like, don't feel bad about messing up, Cassie, because I've messed up a lot, and I messed up everything but you. I'm like, is the full house in the quantum realm? Like, this is... (laughs) I feel like that's what Paul Rudd does, though. (laughs) It makes you wish that he would induce vomiting, get rid of the ooze, and we wouldn't understand a single line of dialogue for the rest of this time. This movie would be better as gibberish because its sentimentality is just, yeah, it's elementary school level. It's really shockingly unsophisticated. And the character arcs are, too. The fact that... I just don't think there's a whole lot of character growth, but there's a lot of machinations. There's a lot that has to be done. Right. There's a lot of coincidence. Like, Scott's having that probability storm. He tries to shrink the power core. It doesn't work, but then Hope shows up, and they fire together, and that does work for reasons. It's just... Yeah, I'm glad you didn't understand that either. I was like, (laughs) they'll tell me. I don't know what this means, but yeah. Love power, because Wasp. They just needed, like, more shrinking things, I guess. Ah, yeah. So you can see, this is why I'm like, I don't know what there is to talk about in this movie. Like Because there isn't really anything going on with the characters, they just run around a lot. They run around a lot until they get out. It's kind of where I'm at. Like, we could talk scene by scene about what happens, but I don't have much more to say. Yeah, I mean, there's standout scenes, and then there's really dull scenes. But the middle of this movie is running on a treadmill and they get the power core back and Kang has it, but for reasons he won't return Cassie. He has no use for Cassie at this point. Just give her back. Right. None of that made any sense other than, as you say, this is also a bad Kang. This is how we understand that because he won't give Cassie back and honor his word, nor will he like get out of there. I feel like it takes forever for this whole Like, it's literally an hour of, like, give me the globe, Michelle Pfeiffer. Like, it's (laughs) shocking how time does seem to stop moving in this moment. Yeah, it's like he hypnotizes Michelle Pfeiffer because she walks off with him and she's very blank-faced, but then she's just arguing against him the whole time. And then I think the reason it takes him a while to leave is it's not just him. He has his robot army now, and they literally do a scene right out of the end of Attack of the Clones. You get this shot of all of his armies in these square patterns, just like the clones were at Attack of the Clones. Ships are landing to pick up the troops, just like in Attack of the Clones. I mean, I just couldn't believe both times I saw this. I saw this the second time with Marjorie. Marjorie leans over and is like, this is the Star Wars prequels. Because that shot is just identical. It had that vibe. Even I, which I don't remember anything about Attack of the Clones, I agree that it had that Lucas... 2000s vibe to it in these scenes and you know they have these supporting characters are they supposed to be registering who the hell is Jintara like really I mean I look these up because that's my role I'm like oh great Jintara and all these different characters some of them come from the comics they're like very obscure ones that I haven't read like when I was reading their bios it's like a space witch that like tried to summon the Hulk and got his son instead I'm like okay these are comics I don't want to read about Hulk well Planet Hulk is pretty good and that was Hulk in space but a space witch and all that like yeah they've repurposed names for characters here they don't mean anything yeah but who is she even in the terms of this story I know she's a rebel 
I think she's the leader of the rebels. Yeah, that's how I took it. Perhaps she's got some armor that makes you think that. And she's got the scepter. Yeah. They keep giving her the scepter of leadership. Right. But I mean, again, you feel like we should know a little bit about her. Like some room should have been made. She should be the Valkyrie. I thought that's what they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. You know, to take this to Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, she should be the Valkyrie who comes into her own at the end. But she really doesn't matter any more than the psychic. The Veb who was wondering how many holes you have and you drink his ooze to understand the language registers more because he gets a funny scene and that's kurt by the way if you were upset that the thieves the supporting characters aren't here yeah uh, the guy that was kurt in the last two films is now voicing the ooze david dalbachian yeah he's polka dot man and suicide squad and yeah he's played both universes we see him a lot. He did a really strange trick with his jaw and girl in the spider's web. Yes, I know. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Like, I feel like they got cool supporting characters, like that robot that has a laser for a head and all of that. But even in Star Wars, you learn a little bit about Chewbacca. You get a sense of their personality. And I just feel like because they want to underline the family wholesomeness so explicitly, they won't make room for new characters. Bill Murray and all of them are just detritus that just falls by the wayside as soon as their scene is over. Isn't this, and it's not as successful, but this does feel like, oh, let's lean into Thor Ragnarok. And instead of Jeff Goldblum, we're going to have Bill Murray and Cord and that little bug guy. Like, it feels like they're trying to do that again here. Maybe because they don't have a visionary director, someone that has a sense of style behind it to give them personality like Taika would do. Yeah. And it's just the cheerleading guy. But yeah, it feels like they're trying to go off of that. But because this team isn't at the same level as more successful Marvel films that have done this, it, it does feel lesser. Yeah. It feels so scattered because Hope jumps out of the ship to help Ant-Man get that core and then all of a sudden Janet's on the ground where Kang can kidnap her and they're crashing Hank's ship and Hank happens to crash into where these super ants are. It just, it doesn't flow very well. And you know what? You could just turn your brain off and go with it and not ask questions, but that's not what Marvel movies have done in the past. Marvel movies have been tight in the past. I don't know if I 100% agree with that they're all tight, but again, this is an Ant-Man film, guys. Like, have they ever been serious and mature? It's, I don't know. I feel like this fits into an Ant-Man film. Like, I agree. The editing of this, there are some edits that just really jarred me. I'm like, how did that person go from there to there or whatever? Like, yes. th there are some technical things that are really off about this. I don't want to say, like, this is a great film that, like, has all the mechanics there. It does not. But, like, I'm laughing and I feel like that is the point of an Ant-Man film. Here's what I suspect. We have answers for some of our questions in a longer cut. Oh, for sure. And when they screened it, they realized the movie was too damn long. And better to be left confused, but feeling like you're on a ride than to have everything slow down and we get laborious backstory for Gentora. It's laborious already in the middle of this, though. Both times I watched it, I feel like it just drags so much until we get to a climax where Scott is... He doesn't ever come around and understand that he has to help the rebels for helping the rebels. He's mad and he's going to storm the Citadel screaming, you lied to me. Where's Cassie? You reneged yeah. on our deal. Yeah. If the idea was that he needs to have a social consciousness and be aware of suffering of others, he only gets involved because Cassie 
was involved. If Kang had handed her back, they would be back on Earth and wouldn't care about a damn thing happening to these quantum people. Well, they couldn't get back to Earth without Kang's power core anyway. I guess. You know, they would have contrived a way. That's the thing that also gets me is they are remarkably unconcerned with how to get home. Mm. For the fact that they're all trapped there and that Janet is going to go and see Kylar, Bill Murray, and, you know, she's not asking, how do we get home? There's no way to get home. She was trapped there until somebody from the outside helped her. The only way out is that power supply. And yet she doesn't want to help Kang get that because he could escape as well. It just feels very messy and very unmotivated. Yeah. A lot of missed opportunity is what I would say. It's a stew of ideas swimming around from a joke writer who, yeah, just doesn't know how to make this form into a structure. You know, it's unstructured jokes and jabs and Saturday morning kind of surrealism. But are you laughing because you keep saying the joke writer is doing this? And I have to admit that in the middle, there aren't a lot of jokes. But at the beginning, at the end, with the goo guy, I do find myself laughing. When he gets his holes, I cheered. Yes, like, I'm like, oh, he finally got his holes. And then you find out he has, like, super sucking powers or something. I think this movie has super sucking powers. (laughs) (laughs) I think my favorite line, and I wonder if, like, Disney was really nervous about this, because it felt like Michael Douglas is like, I'm saying this line, and you're keeping it in. It's in my contract. Is like, yeah, all those ants rush in. And again, I'm like, yay, the ants are here. Like, it's an Ant-Man film. I want the giant ants. I missed Antony and the drumming ant and all that. Michael Douglas is like, well, I know socialism is a loaded term, but like explaining like the ants work. That got a crowd reaction. You could hear titters of like, oh, are they going here or not? But yeah, the fact that, yeah, it gets shut down quick speaks to our times. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that the ants have formed a class two technocratic society because the ants lived a thousand years in a single day because of the time dilation of going to the quantum realm. Techno jargon, anybody? This is like the best of the Star Trek The Next Generation episodes, which is making shit up. Here's the thing. I don't care. Like, I love the fact, like, yeah, these ants lived a thousand years in a day, and now they're super smart and have technology. Like, weird ideas, not always perfectly or even maybe acceptably executed, but I just, I like the bevy of weird ideas going on. Throughout. I think I would be in a much better stance if it weren't Ant-Man. If this were another Avenger. If this was Iron Man, would you want this story? Like, this doesn't feel like an Iron Man story. Even Doctor Strange. I feel like Doctor Strange would fit in here. I feel... Yeah, Doctor Strange could. I feel like there's other Avengers that would have been better suited for this matchup of Kang. And because they are making an Ant-Man movie... And because Ant-Man really only has Cassie, like, what is the threat of his life? That he was this, you know, cool dad that got in trouble, sort of, but for good reasons. Now she's also getting arrested. How does he parent her? That they both can now turn big and hug each other. And I kid you not, most of this climax is about them and... Like, she gets chased by MODOK and then tells him not to be a dick. and Yeah, which I don't know how you don't have the line, don't be a MODIC in this film. Like, there you go, Jimmy Kimmel writer. I came up with a better joke than any of these in here. But it's very elementary school. Like, hey, how about you stop being a dick? But it also feels very jokey Ant-Man to me. Like, this is the turning point for MODOK is like, hey, don't you want to be liked and not be a jerk to everyone? Okay, sure. 
the fact that they made it Darren and like he gets mad whenever they call him Darren. It's hard to take if you're a big Modoc stan like maybe you are, Arnie. Like maybe this doesn't set well. I wondered. I wonder how this was going to play for Arnie and Marjorie. The first time I watched it, I was a little bit disappointed because I do like comic Modoc so much. Comic book Modoc. And the second time I watched it, I rolled with it a lot better. The problem I have is the special effect doesn't look very good of the big head. What is with that? That's got to be on purpose, right? It looks like it's projected. Yes. It doesn't look like it's an actual giant head. It looks like Big Brother from 1984. Yeah, I was wondering if that was on purpose. Yeah, some of these effects are not up to snuff. That's shocking that you say that, Stuart, because usually you just give that a pass, but that was something I noted. I gave it a pass, but again, we were paying $30 for 3D prices. Yeah. I mean, it's not the worst CGI, and one of my problems with the Jungle Cruise is, like, that's about being on a boat in the jungle on a river. Like, you could have really cool actual scenery there, and that's just a movie filmed in a green room. And, like, so is this, but this is a quantum realm. Like, I understand that. I give that this is going to feel all green screened. But yeah, there are times where if you had a more visionary director, someone that could pull a little bit more weight, like they could have tightened some of this up. Yeah. I love road movies. I love exploring a new dimension. There's so much about surrealism. There's so much about this I was looking forward to that feels unrealized. I feel this end battle is Marvel, you know, batting average with the big fight where, you know, I had this question If they're in the quantum realm, they're tiny. Remember how you get to the quantum realm as you become like subatomic size? Yes. So how does that impact Scott's ability to become big and small? He becomes huge here. At one point, my wife leaned over to me and she's like, can't they just grow really big to get out of here? I'm like, no, it doesn't quite work like that. But I feel like by the third film in any franchise, whatever rules you set up for your hero or villains or whatever, the magic or science or physics, like by the third film, you've always thrown that out. Like it does doesn't matter like remember that first star wars film we got to calculate before we go into light speed and then like in the later films like let's just go into light speed no they always calculate they don't make a big deal about calling that out like they do in that first one no that's true but here he just becomes super big and we get this huge army of rebels because cassie sent out a message that was cassie's big thing is to give the call to arms and They're aided by those ants that come in and they come in late, just like Michael Douglas comes in late. (laughs) He doesn't do much either. He lets the ants do the fighting. Let's just put it that way. I mean, the guy is what, 80? I'm just saying it's a problem when you have action scenes with actors that are not limber, right? Always. For whatever reason, however much you might like them. I feel like if you're coming to this wanting a kick-ass Michael Douglas fight scene, wrong expectations. Yeah, I don't. I don't even want this. This scene is fine, but it's disconnected from anything that feels meaningful. It's just a lot of noise. I was wondering when those ants were going to come back, though. Like, I saw them fall down through the quantum realm, and I'm like, they got to come back at some point. Yeah, the biggest thing that happens here is Modoc's death. And I did have to laugh. I couldn't help myself when he's dying after fighting against Kang. And he's like, Scott, you were always like a brother to me. And Paul Rudd plays it perfectly. He's like... I was, <laughs> and then at least I died an Avenger. <laughs> yeah, I, I chuckled. Yeah, I mean, Paul Rudd just knows how to play that kind of awkward humor very well, and I thought that was a good end for this incarnation of Modoc because 
you have to have a villain you defeat. And if you don't really defeat the Kangs in this, Modok is the one who has the change of heart. He's really your Lando. Yeah, true. He does come around at the end. Uh, yeah, I thought that was a fairly satisfying moment. And, you know, a family-friendly message. It's never too late to stop being a dick. Yeah. But suddenly there's a portal, right? Suddenly they're all back home except Scott, who's got a beat on Kang, or maybe that's vice versa. Janet does something during this fight to open the portal, and somehow everyone ends up right in Kang's throne room. I think they 3D printed something. There looks like a 3D printer or something, this tube that is doing something. I guess this is where he makes all his technology. But this is so cliche, like, here's the portal, and we got a group of people, and each one's going to walk through. But that last one, where is he? He's not coming through. No, because he's getting pummeled by a guy who we're going to see in a couple weeks fight Creed. Dear God. Holy crap, yes. The pythons on Jonathan Major. Paul Rudd can't stand a chance against this guy. He's going to be the bad guy in Creed 3, and he is in Creed 3 boxing shape. His sleeve gets ripped off. Yeah. It is Thor big. It is huge. What's funny is, like, talking to my wife after we saw this, she's like, oh, Kang, that was one of my favorite villains. I'm like, oh, interesting, why? She's like, well, I mean, did you just see him? He is imposing. And that voice, oh, I could just fall asleep to that voice. So like, I'm like, oh, okay, so you're in love with Kang. That's what it, he provides that sweet <laughs> ASMR for you. And But yes, Jonathan Majors, man, that dude, that sleeve comes off. He is ripped. He was also the star of Lovecraft Country. I don't think anybody watched that show but me. But uh, yeah, I mean, he could have played. And I imagine he is going to be more complicated. Again, I think we're on to something with the idea that him getting back he says it's go back there and win, and we don't know what that means. Maybe if it had been played by Charlie Sheen, we would see that it's creepy. I feel like there's nuance to him. I definitely think, yeah, he's physically imposing. It's a lot of, you know, sonorous line readings, but I'll say this much. I like Kang, too, and Marvel does have a villain problem. They really don't have too many in their stable that have had lasting power. And so, yeah, I think that they've got a good hook for the next five or six films. I'll agree. I was very suspicious of making Kang like your new Thanos for this next few waves of Marvel films. But by the end of this one, I've come around. I'm like, oh, I really want to get into this Kang dynasty and get into this storyline now. I like this villain. I like Jonathan Major. I don't understand this villain, though. I'll be just perfectly honest and say... I don't know exactly what they want, exactly what danger they pose to us. I understand the line in this movie that Cassie says, just because it's not happening to us doesn't mean it's not happening. But I want to know what danger Kang poses. And even Janet, at one point, she's like, you're going to destroy entire worlds. And Kang goes, yeah, but not yours. And so it's like, it feels like a very far off threat. It doesn't feel like a... Avengers level, Earth level threat. I will say that is one thing I thought would get defined more in this film is what is the threat of Kang? I guess that's for another six or seven films to slowly explore. Yeah. I, when I say I like Kang, I'm talking in very superficial terms. Yeah, agree. The actor is commanding. Uh, he looks scary in this fight. I'm looking forward to him coming back and learning more about him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They've teased enough to have me ask the questions and show up eager to see Jonathan Major again, more than Ant-Man, frankly, who somehow wins the fight because poor Wasp, they let her come back and shoot one laser or something, and he falls into a meat grinder. 
something. I don't know. He falls into the power core and gets sucked in. It reminded me a lot of how Red Skull died in that first Captain America (laughs) film where, you know, even Scott's going to be like, did we kill him? And I'm wondering, did they kill him? It's not until the mid credit scene that they're like, he was killed. And I'm like, okay, so they did kill him. But at this point, no, ah, he's coming back. He's going to come back and be their friend. I kid you not. By phase five, sixth movie, he will be an ally. <laughs> I doubt that. I, they never did that with Thanos. I don't see it happening. They can't undercut who their new big bad is. Because he enslaves some people in the quantum realm doesn't mean people are complicated, right? I mean, we can all be tyrants and heroes. Maybe that should be an interesting message. Like Now that we're all superheroes, why don't we analyze the things that we've done and see if they're all heroic? I do love that Scott has this existential crisis at the end of this film. Like, he told me something bad would happen if he dies and I killed him. Did I just destroy the universe? Did I just, like, doom Earth? No, I'm a good guy. I'm an Avenger. Like, I did like him questioning himself at the end there. Yeah. And then shrugging it off in Scott fashion of being like, hey, I'm going to go to Baskin Robbins and get a cake. It's Paul Rudd. Yes. But maybe. A misspelled cake that was made by that comedian you mentioned from the first film. Happy Bith Day. But yeah, so again, if this has been about anything, it's about he's getting that cake for Cassie. I missed all those birthdays and now we're together and who needs Wasp anyway? You and I and maybe just you are going to continue this on. Hey, Wasp is there, but I wondered if this was filmed later because she changed her hair. She's like blonde now. I noticed that. But yes, then Kang, whether or not you think they killed that one Kang, there's Kang Tut. And other Kangs. I love that there's Kang Tut because one of the Easter eggs in that Loki series, in the comic books, Kang the Conqueror would like drive around in a like spaceship that looked like a Sphinx because he went back to like ancient Egypt and like took that over. So the fact that, yeah, Kang Tut shows up here cracked me up. The only thing this told me was, you know, he talked about them. He used, you know, a non-gendered pronoun to describe whoever exiled him. I thought it could have been the Eternals, honestly. I was trying to imagine who had stuck him in the quantum realm, and it was himself. The fact that there are hundreds, thousands, infinite numbers of Jonathan Majors, uh, that will be hard to dramatize in a fight. I think you missed a dropped line, because when Scott and Kang are talking, Scott says, what's coming? And Kang goes, me. A lot of me. They exiled me down here. They're afraid of me. So because I watched Loki, I knew what he was saying, at least. I thought it was kind of goofy. Like you see these Kangs teleporting in and like cheering for some reason. Like it feels like really bad acting. Like we don't know what's going to happen in this scene, but let's just play it this way and we'll make it fit. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You're to be intimidated by Kang returning. That is what the end credits at the end, it's not Ant-Man will return, it's Kang will return. It's weird that we get two, like, multiple Kang endings. Like, I thought, okay, we got our teaser here, and then we have another teaser. I guess this is for Loki season two. I was 100%, 110% convinced that it was Bill Murray, right? Jeff Goldblum got the instinger at his movie, and they've given Murray nothing to do. He wasn't even in the big battle. Murray showed up for as long as Murray was going to show up, I think. That's how he plays. I thought he would be riding an ant or something. You know, he had to redeem himself, but he is not the instinger. And I don't even think they filmed an instinger. I think they went, oh, crap, we got to put something in there. What's done? Oh, we got this thing from just a (laughs) Loki episode. Nobody's seen it yet. So run it. And my audience, the first time I said they were an animated audience, 
or animated audience, I suppose. <laughs> and they got so excited to see Loki again. That was a huge cheer in a small crowd. I mean, that was the biggest reaction they had the whole film was that Loki was back. Did they not see the show? Or are they just really excited for season two? I don't know, but they were really happy to see that. And there was a question of will Owen Wilson return for season two? And it's good to see he is. Yeah. And also there is Kang. Apparently he is the true inventor. Take that Thomas Edison of the movie (laughs) motion picture camera, which would put this in the 1890s, Arnie. You said the 20s, but I think it's 30 years before that. I think they played as the 20s or they say that or something. Yeah, I went off what Wiki said on that one as for the time period. Okay. Whatever Wiki says has got to be true. And I thought he was demonstrating a time machine. Yeah, it said time travel or... Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know what... I thought it looked like motion picture cameras. Yeah, but he had a sign talking about time travel next to him, so... Okay. All right. Yeah, we don't know. We'll find out in future television series and movies. But for this one, Jacob Stewart... I honestly ask because I don't know. Do you recommend Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania? Jacob. Here's the thing. I think we all saw the same film. It's just what were our expectations? Like you guys did that Arnold retrospective. I wasn't on that. But a lot of those films, I'm just like, yeah, I know they're bad, but they're still entertaining. They are brown arrow films like Commando, like not a good movie. Entertaining as hell. And so like an Ant-Man film, I kind of know what to expect. Like it's Ant-Man. It's Paul Rudd. It's going to be jokes are better than logic and storytelling. Like that, that is the priority for these. So I went into this one. I just wanted some weirdness in that quantum realm. And yeah, I got that. Like this isn't sophisticated. This isn't smart. It is a goofy cartoon to watch with your children. I feel like this one out of the three Ant-Man films is the most honey. I shrunk the kids. Like that was kind of my bar when I saw that first one. And like, is this a good honey? I shrunk the kids film with, people writing ants. And that's a film that's not about story. It's about writing ants and bees and giant cookies and falling into cereal bowls. Like that's the fun. I feel like when you'd play with size and all of that. And so here in the quantum realm, it's about the weirdness and just wacky, goofy things going on. And is that tight, engaging storytelling? Maybe not, especially for adults. I think the kids will have a lot of fun. I went into this and I had a good time. I realized there are a lot of faults. I have criticisms of this film. I would hope people have realistic expectations for an Ant-Man film. And I think these meet that very mediocre bar. And it's an entertaining adventure. Not a whole lot of smarts to it, but it's good enough to recommend. Stuart. All right, I'll skip to the end. Yeah, I'm recommending it because I recommended the last one. <laughs> if I recommended Ant-Man and Wasp, there's no choice. Like, this is better than that because it has a bigger size. Going to the quantum realm is just more interesting than seeing a blipping ghost woman. Yes, this feels worthy of the big screen. And Ant-Man, oftentimes, pun intended, is small. It doesn't seem to really play on that scale. I was excited to go to this new realm, and I was excited to see Jonathan Major tell us what Kang was really going to do. I mostly got that, and so I'm satisfied, and there is the recommend. I like Kang. I recommend this movie. But was this, like... A satisfying family drama, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you say, about a family coming together and solving problems as little people. Um, I pretty much hated all of the moments between Cassie and Scott. I found a lot of it 
80s retro sitcom level writing and probably would have been better served on a smaller screen. Probably would have played better as a Disney Plus show. And in screenwriting, you really want characters to do things. The mistake of this movie is things just kind of happen to characters. In some cases with Michael Douglas, maybe they had no choice. He can't move. But I just, you never want to be in a situation where just suddenly the climax is happening all around you and you haven't done anything. And I think if the criticism was that Scott hasn't been involved in political activism, I'm not sure that this movie changes my opinion of that. And so, yes, as a character piece, as an Ant-Man movie, I would say it's pretty poor. We didn't learn much about Ant-Man and his daughter kind of sucks. So that is the downside. See Ant-Man despite the fact that it has Ant-Man in it. And, you know, again, a little Hail Mary pass for Wasp. She was my least favorite thing in the first two movies. Most improved here. Doesn't get much to do. With Ant-Man, you're always on the border between recommend or not. And I'm feeling generous, but... I don't want another one. Uh, recommend. Don't do this ever again. <laughs> You'll give it the green light if they never give another one the green light. <laughs> uh-huh. And I disagree with you, Stuart, in that you said if you gave Ant-Man and the Wasp a recommend, this is better. I rewatched both Ant-Man films this week and then saw this one twice. And my feeling going in the first time and why I had to see it a second time was to confirm. I find this to be the most unfocused and the least satisfying of the Ant-Man trilogy. I think this is a step down from what they've done before. You know what? I've dissed Peyton Reed a lot in all of our Ant-Man reviews, but at least in the first two, it felt like he was working on a scope with which he was comfortable. And here... This is too much for him. Yeah, he bit off more than he could chew with Quantum Mania. I just think that it's really unfocused and it shows a lack of direction it shows a lack of creative control ant-man should only play with Luis, is what you're saying he can't do more <laughs> maybe you might be right no he's a good supporting character in bigger stories he was great in civil war i loved him in endgame you know but here i just found myself really in tedium during the middle of this film when they're giving all the Kang backstory and yet not giving any answers. They say so much and tell so little that it makes me think they haven't even decided what they want Kang to be yet. And yes, I didn't mind that Cassie had her own suit. I found that to be kind of cool. I like the design of the suit and things, but I had to wonder really hard, is this going to be the second Marvel movie to not get a recommend from me after Eternals? It is the second one on Rotten Tomatoes to not be fresh. But I needed something to tip me in one direction or another. What would either push it over to recommend or push it under to not recommend? Kang. Cassie. And <laughs> you hate Cassie so much. <laughs> I don't like that he has a daughter that's super smart that has a suit and has no need for him. That was really boring. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Here's what's pushing me over to the recommend is that it was written by a joke writer who writes some funny jokes. Like in that first 10 minutes, I'm laughing almost nonstop. I love it when Scott turns on his audiobook and is like, I was turned into a baby by the Hulk. Am I the Hulk's baby? <laughs> you know, 
When did that happen? Did that actually happen? Yeah, that happened in Endgame when they were experimenting with time travel. He was turned into a baby, then turned into an old man, and then turned back into himself. Oh, okay. Don't remember that part. He's like, I peed myself. I don't know if it was young me or old me. Again, best in an ensemble. But I laughed during that stuff. I laughed with the goo dude in here. And I enjoyed Modoc. I thought it was a pretty decent adaptation, if not faithful. I enjoyed Modoc in here. There was stuff to enjoy. And I'm also feeling generous, so I will give this a recommend. But I have to ask this question, and I mean it. What is the bigger disappointment? Disney-era Star Wars films or post-Endgame-era Marvel films? Oh, Disney-era Star Wars films, easily. Like, not even a question. No hesitation. Um, I mean, they are not making Star Wars films because they were so bad. <laughs> if it wasn't for Spider-Man No Way Home, it would be a very close call. But between Spider-Man No Way Home being so good and The Rise of Skywalker being so bad, I agree with you that Star Wars is worse, but... Marvel is on a downward trajectory. It's been a while since I've even thought about Star Wars, but yeah, I'm going to rule Star Wars is worse. I mean, is Marvel on a downward trajectory? Like, yes. The thing was, they set a very high bar that they were able to hold up for like 10 years. And now it's like, oh, this is more typical action fare. Like now it's just mediocre. Like, I don't even think it's necessarily all bad. It's just, yeah, it's not that high bar that they had met. Let's not forget what the 90s were. Let's not forget where superhero movies came from. Yeah. And notice, <laughs> I didn't say which was worse. I said what was the most disappointing. And going to mediocre from greatness is disappointing. They have lost sparks, several sparks in expanding too fast and not doing quality control. And anything after 30 movies becoming overly familiar. You say these things are funny. I'm like, yeah, but all these jokes have been told before. And I don't ever want to hear another joke about Baskin Robbins. So <laughs> that's the problem. It's like this was the 31st Marvel film and Baskin Robbins does have 31 flavors. <laughs> <laughs> Once you reach a certain level of celebrity, it seems like all you can do is be narcissistic and talk about yourself. And that really hurts creativity and reinvention. And again, there was so much of that I wanted to happen in this quantum realm. And it just became an echo chamber of uh, greatest hits. Let's joke about what we did before. And since we're talking about it, I think that is the Disney Marvel problem. You talked about that machine. The problem is it is a machine and machines are there to put out the exact same thing over and over and over. But there is hope. Okay. Well, barely. She she got three scenes. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned this when we reviewed Black Panther, but Bob Iger is back in control. And Kevin Feige came out and said, Marvel movies are supposed to be a special thing and an event. And between the TV series and the movies, it's been coming out too frequently. It's lost what made it special. They're going to be making less TV series, spacing things out more. I think the move of the Marvels to November is part of that initiative to give Marvel movies more space. And honestly... You know, I love the Marvel movies of before, but yes, I think quality over quantity would be so nice to have again. And so space things out and focus on making each one magnificent is great. And that's what Kevin Feige said they're doing. Get directors with a vision. Don't be afraid of that. Let go of that control a little bit, Disney. Yeah, and don't be in such a rush to 
bring to life every single character that's ever appeared in the pages of Marvel. They're not all gold. Already they've changed, you know, they made that huge announcement of all the TV series and all the movies that we thought we'd have to be covering. They've already changed some of that. Like Armor Wars was supposed to be this TV series. Now they're making it a one-off movie. And as far as I know, the only TV series that's confirmed for 2023 is Secret Invasion and Loki Season 2. Yeah. Great news. So I'm hopeful they can pull out of this. But yeah, this is an inglamorous start to Marvel Phase 5. Agreed. I'm actually more encouraged than you because I like Kang and I'm that's where I'm staying. It's like they got the right actor. But yeah, it wasn't as tight as I thought. I really thought it would be let's get it together and reestablish faith with our audience. And it felt as messy as many of the Phase 4 entries. Yeah. I mean, what is Phase 4? Phase 4 is the forgettable phase. Forgettable. But... We're going to be back with Jonathan Majors in two weeks when we review Creed 3. I mean, truly the best actor in this film. And how will he do against another Marvel bad guy, Michael B. Jordan? Mm, sounds like a fun fight. <laughs> a more fair fight than him versus Scott Lang. <laughs> but before we get there, we got another Dracula movie to cover. The one that hasn't been told or seen. Another cinematic universe. Yeah, I didn't see... This uh, 2014 Dracula Untold, but uh, it's gone well so far. I really enjoyed this series, and I'm curious about what I missed. Were we spared an awful dark universe, or was this the start of something good that just got cut down in its prime? Are you saying it's Dracula underrated? Could be. I hope so. We'll find out next week. And in the meantime, dystopias are still a thing, and we're in the 90s, where... Global warming has created Waterworld. Kevin Costner, underrated. This I'll call underrated. Notorious bomb, yeah. Mm -hmm. Unseen by me. I have not watched this film. I never saw the draw, but I will be watching it by Friday in order for that review. So you'll be getting my newbie take as well as Stuart's apparently fan take. Yeah, I mean, it's Mad Max on jet skis. Like, Well, that sounds awesome. There's the draw. Yeah, you should have seen it in theaters. Like, there's the draw. Yep. Agreed. It will be out for our $25 donors and patrons, and I want to give a shout out to some of those patrons. Some of these are from our Patreon, Jeremy Mills, Sean O'Keefe, Andrew Morrison, Tim Welsh, Gerard Lavelle, Rob Carter, DJ Hankhammer. I apologize if I said that wrong. Hankhammer. DJ Hankhammer, Benjamin Timmers, and Sean Williams. Don't forget about Valencia Burns. Joshua Straw, Trevor, Timothy Graham, Simon Brennan, Alejandra Avia, Tom Ward, San Burgess, and Anthony Opes. And thank you to Andrew Woodhead, Tom Janik, James Kinslow III, Darker Hue Studios, Kent Lyons, Andrew Doran, Maurice Wendell, Tommy Woodward, and Jeff Wade. You guys rock so much. You're like our army of super smart mechanized ants that keep this show going because i know socialism is a bad term but we are a crowdsourced podcast without your support <laughs> we would not continue love it or not yeah it's why we're still in operation after so many years so thank you for listening but hey we'll be back to marvel in a few months guardians of the galaxy volume three James Gunn is ruthless, as we'll find out the next time the, the Avengers, Avengers Assemble! Assemble.
It's off. so weird. Something's wrong with this switch. It won't turn I off. I said turn it off. What's that? Turn it up? All right. Thank you for listening to this episode in the now playing Avengers Retrospective Series. Lucky for us, we got the best seats in the house. Part of our Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective Series. Your work has impressed a lot of people who are much smarter than I am. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We're adjourned. We're adjourned for the day. Okay. You've been a delight. Head to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear reviews of all the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, from Iron Man to Guardians of the Galaxy to Endgame reviews of every DC Comics movie, plus hundreds of other movie reviews of series like A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Fast and the Furious, Ghostbusters, Jurassic Park, and more. Find over 1,000 in-depth movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Therefore, what I'm saying, if I'm saying anything, is welcome back. Subscribe to Now Playing on your podcast app of choice and get an all-new movie review every single week. We're gonna knock their socks off. Want even more Now Playing reviews? By being a Now Playing patron or donor, you can get two reviews each week. Is it too much of a problem to ask? Because I'm, I'm... Okay, okay. I really need your help here. Now Playing is an independent podcast without any sponsors or ads. We rely on listener support to keep our show going. Are you going to step up or not? Donate to our show and as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Supporters get perks including bonus podcasts every Friday, the ability to listen to us live, and you can even pick a movie for us to review and join us on the podcast. We need heroes. We need you. Find all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. It's a small price to pay for salvation. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash nowplaying to see what our hosts are watching when we're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. It's strange. Maybe. Who am I to judge? Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Well, multi-platform global operation. Associate produced by Jason Latham. He's pretty good at that. Right? Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret, Cat. I'm always angry. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Are you making your voice deeper? No, <gasps> you are. just did it again. entertaining the content. This is my voice. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. Just stick to the official statement and soon this will all be behind you. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. You really think just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. On behalf of the Time Variance Authority, I hereby arrest you for crimes against the sacred timeline. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2023, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Hey, fellas. 
Hey, wait, where are you going? I've got so many more stories to tell. And my name is Jacob, and I have seven holes. I wasn't sure if you'd say I have seven holes or and I am not a dick. <laughs> now, I was actually counting on the I am not a dick. Yeah. Well, my first choice was actually to announce myself as the juggler against knowledge of beverages, but you could call me Jacob, but you did a Modoc joke. So. <laughs> I spent all morning on ChatGPT, my AI bot, to come up with an acronym for my name. <laughs> the eyes count. I'm sorry, but your pupils are holes. I mean, do you get into pores and all that? I mean, sure. Yeah, right. Exactly. Where exactly does the navel end? How deep does the navel go? It doesn't go all the way in. It's, I hope it's not a hole, Arnie. I mean, there is, yes, flesh that has prevented that from being a hole. I only stick the Q-tip in until it hurts. Okay. It's a hole. It's not a hole. Happy Bith Day. Bith being a alien species in Star Wars. Is it? Yeah, it's the Cantina Band. Oh, oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs>